where all of a sudden they open and year one is 50 cycles, year two is 400 cycles. And you're like, how did you do 8X? And you find out 46, 47 year olds are told that this is the place to go for your first IVF cycle ever. And the donor egg conversation is not happening. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today, I speak to Dr. Brian Levine from CCRM New York. Before we get into the topic of what it's like to build a de novo center within a very large group in an extremely large market, I want to give today's shout out to Dr. Kenan Omertag. Thought of Dr. Omertag because I met him around the same time that I met Dr. Levine. Also did a piece of content with him early on when in my tenure in the field. And so shout out to Ken and hopefully I get a text or an email that he got wind of this shout out. Today's show with Dr. Levine is about what it's like to launch a brand new center under the umbrella of a very large company in an extremely large market. We talk about what that's like, the pressures of that are like versus the pressures of starting a clinic as a satellite office for someone else as an associate, for example, and we talk about the dynamics of the New York market, what CCRM is like, a little bit of background about Dr. Levine. He's the founding partner and practice director of CCRM New York. You may have seen him on New York Post, NBC, CNN, Avenue Magazine. He gets around, I believe, ASRM Tech Committee is where I may have originally met him. And so please enjoy today's episode with Dr. Brian Levine, one of the Castle Connolly top docs from New York's super doctor ranking about what it's like to start a de novo clinic within a large group in a big market. Dr. Levine, Brian, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin, for having me. I'm super excited to be here today. I almost said welcome back, but when I re- when my podcast producer brought to me a list of suggestions for topics and we put you on there and I thought, oh yeah, we'll have Brian back. And you haven't been on the show. You were a guest author in The Ultimate Guide to Fertility <laughs> Marketing, which we wrote five years ago. But this is your first time on this show. And I always, I, I guess I just always thought you were on, Brian. So it's we're overdue, but I'm glad that you're on the show right now. And I want to talk about the situation that you've been in in your career, which is starting a new practice in a very established group in a new market. So do you want to set us up with a little bit of background for that? Sure. To help set the the foundation for our conversation today, the theme that I think we should bring forward is a partnership. Right, because that's what this whole topic is really going to be about. And they're starting a clinic and working with an established brand and helping to be part of a new of that brand now growing into something new and exciting. The theme is partnership today. And I've been very fortunate. For me, I kind of think it was a timing, being in the right place at the right time. So I'm a New York guy, right? Like I literally have not left New York City since the summer of 2002 when I graduated college. I went to graduate school in New York City. I went to medical school in New York City. I did my residency here. I did my fellowship here. And truth be told, I always viewed myself 
as someone who was going to be part of that academic rigor, right? Like I always thought I was going to be at some hospital with some affiliated medical school, teaching, seeing patients, mentoring residents and whatnot. And there really was a turning point for me in fellowship where I kind of had to make a decision. I had to make a decision of, do I want to go down this academic pathway and help train the next generation? Or do I want to start treating the current crop of patients that are having trouble achieving their goals? And what really pushed the envelope for me was ASRM. You and I were just talking a few minutes ago about conferences. And I remember going to these these meetings and seeing just the publications that were coming out of places like the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine or CCRM and saying to myself, oh my gosh, like you'd have a private practice that does research and that is actually moving the needle, improving patients that's outside the confines of the academic models that I've grown up in, that I've been a part of for really 11 years of my life. So why was that your conception at the time that research was for academic? You wouldn't expect to see an abstract or research from a private institution. Why had that been established in your mind? I I think, unfortunately, that many of us are very jaded in medical school, right? We never learn about the business of medicine. We never learn about leadership and how to run a group or how to form a practice. And we also learn, unfortunately, either by osmosis, right? No one ever says it, but they kind of just infer it, that the private docs are out there for the wrong reason. And that is the academic people that are going to move the needle forward. And I think it's a culture thing. Unfortunately, I, I think it's a culture of academic medicine and the training of young physicians. And so to me, I was always jaded. I, I always just thought like the only way you can make a difference in the world is to be part of this academic rigor and become an assistant professor and a strive to be associate and strive to be a full professor. And it just didn't jive with who I, I was as a person, right? I'm, I'm a geek. Deep down inside, I'm a big technology geek. I like data. I like technology. That's why I'm in this field, to be quite frank. And what I saw was that the most innovation that was occurring, that real bench to bedside transition of taking a concept to an experiment to a trial, to a patient treatment paradigm, was actually occurring in these private practices. And that's what intrigued me. Do any examples come to your mind when you think of those experiments and what was happening in the private realm that you weren't seeing in the academic realm? Absolutely. I'll give you the great example. The great debate of our field, the genetic testing of embryos. I will never forget one of the first American Society for Reproductive Medicine annual clinical meetings that I went to was someone standing up on stage with a soccer ball saying, if you take a a biopsy of an embryo, you don't know if you're getting the black or the white, and you're going to judge an embryo by the specimen or the biopsy you get. And then you had these other doctors standing up saying, look, I have a private practice in Las Vegas, and I can tell you just straight up frozen embryo transfers versus fresh embryo transfers, there's a benefit to frozen. And if I can pick the right embryo that I'm putting back in that frozen setting, I can not only have an advantage based on the frozen, I have an advantage on that embryo selection. And it was literally that debate, the debate about genetic testing, which by the way, was in its infancy stages compared to where we are today, nine years later, that really drove me towards the private side was the ability to have freedom of vendors, (laughs) the ability to incorporate new technology, the ability to incorporate new protocols and treatment plans without having to deal with the confines of the academic um, institutions that are very well established, but you know, there are restrictions that are there. 
that experiment and others like it are what drove you to the private side. And I do want to talk about partnership. I want to unpack that some more. But first, I want to be between partnership and being interested in the private side was an interest in where you are today, which is CCRM. At the time, maybe they were still in Denver mostly. Maybe this might have been the time that they were expanding into other markets. But talk to me about how you came to get CCRM on your radar? Yeah, so I've been really fortunate throughout my entire training career, and I'd say and now professional career, is to have good mentors, right? So everyone needs a good mentor. When I was in medical school, it was Dr. Jamie Griffo at NYU. I fondly remember skipping classes even to just go shadow him, right? To, to go to the operating room as a first-year medical student to see him you know, remove someone's diseased fallopian tube or remove fibroids or come in on a weekend to see him do an egg retrieval. When I was in residency, people like Dr. Mark Sauer uh, and Roger Lobo, amazing mentors again, who were really pushing the envelope of reproductive endocrinology. And from Dr. Sauer, I, I mean, I learned about the whole world of donor oocytes and donor egg. And then of course, in fellowship, I had Zev Rosenwax, who is an unbelievable mentor. And I'd say really one of the pioneers of the field. But when I was in fellowship, and there are certain names that just come up, you know, like these, these pioneers of our field that really are pushing the envelope over. And we kept talking a lot about Dr. Schoolcraft, Dr. Bill Schoolcraft at CCRM, who is the founder and the lead of that group, and how they were doing things differently. We would talk quite often about the research they were doing about genetic testing, how they had an entire integrated genetic testing core. And it just piqued my interest. So it was at the Boston ASRM that October, I'll never forget, of 2013, where I met him. <laughs> I just went up to him and introduced myself briefly. And I said, I just want to learn what you do because you know, I keep hearing your name in a positive light. And in a true mentor-mentee fashion, I think that's where he took an interest in my interest in, in CCRM. And that's where I started learning more about what they were doing. I had no idea that they were ever expanding. Um, when I went to go talk to him, even though I'm a New York guy, I think part of me thought I could end up in Denver if I'm lucky enough to be there. I, I want to talk more about that expansion, and I certainly want to get to the partnership, but your thoughts on mentorship really have me in a bit of a soliloquy here, which is, I think this is one of the challenges that many centers that are having difficulties recruiting fellows are facing. What I, I get emails from fellows, Brian. I'm a D biology student. I run a <laughs> business development client services firm, but fellows will just ask me about, well, where do they think I should go or who I should connect them with? And maybe it's because I'm completely fiduciary. I can just introduce them to anyone. But I also think that there is somewhat of a dearth of, it's not that there's a dearth of clinical mentors in the field or, or people willing to help. I think that there's a certain scarcity of doctors that have a profile that's facing the fellows that they see that they can reach out to in the same way that you just described Dr. Schoolcraft that in and how you reached out to him in at ASRM Boston and those that do have that there's a handful of groups that are getting more than their fair share of younger doctors in terms of recruitment. Maybe you just talk a little bit more about that because especially for these mid-sized groups that now they're starting, maybe they had an associate and that associate left and didn't end up moving on to partner and they're having a little bit of a struggling with recruiting the next person to replace them. I think 
that it comes with this profile of mentorship. So maybe you could unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, no one can do it all. You can't work 365. You just can't. And if you are, you're probably not good at your job if you're working 365 because either you're not giving yourself enough time to recoil and build yourself back up and build up those reserves again. Or if you're burning yourself too thin, it might be that you don't work well with others and that you actually don't have a group where you can really have collaborative care. But what I think is happening right now is that there's this push for volume. And I don't know if you're hearing this from the other guests of your other podcasts and people you've spoken to, but definitely on the clinical side, I see this, this, this push to cycle, right? Like meet Susie today, cycle her next week. And as part of that push to volume, it might be because of managed care. It might be because reimbursements are going down. It might be because there's increased access to fertility services. It might be because there's increased public interest in fertility services. What we see is that quite often people kind of get in this rut and just keep doing things over and over again. And then they don't have time to actually mentor and sit down with someone. And so what what I think you're hitting at is a really important point, which is these fellows need mentorship. We don't learn in fellowship how to bill, how to approach a patient, how to recruit a patient, how to get rid of a patient, how to refer a patient out, right? Like none of that stuff you get to do because as a fellow, you're pretty much the grunt worker in the middle and the patients come to the clinic and then you have the opportunity and privilege of taking care of them. What I think is happening right now is there's this this push for growth and is it private equity firms? Is it the the commoditization of women's healthcare? I don't know. But as we see this continued growth pattern where everyone needs to grow and grow and grow, fellows are just kind of getting hired and going into these practices without taking a step back and saying, sure, I want to work for the Yankees, but I wouldn't work for the Yankees if there's no batting coach. I wouldn't work for the Yankees if there's no one who's going to help me learn how to learn the plays. And I think that part is not happening. For me, I came out of fellowship and I had a year before this practice opened. I had a year to work with Dr. Schoolcraft and his team in Colorado to not only learn his playbook, but to learn the team of how to talk the talk, how to walk the walk. And I'll tell you, I will never, if I could do it all over again, I would not change a thing because I spent a year helping with monitoring of patients who are from Colorado in New York City. And during that time, I got to learn their protocols, learn the treatment plans, to think about how that group was thinking about the patients, which I think every day has benefited me now in my clinical practice. The difference here might be in the difference between a partner physician and an associate physician, because when most doctors are leaving fellowships, they're becoming an associate of a practice. They're not a partner of the group yet. They sign an employment contract. Very often, the terms for partnership are not elucidated in that employment contract. But either way, they're expensive. They're a quarter mil, maybe 300,000 a year. That's a big investment for a group plus whatever benefits and training and other considerations on top of that. So that's part of the reason why they're going into workhorse mode is because someone is paying them a big salary off the bat and they need to recoup that. So that's what I want to understand about a de novo center, especially one with like CCRM, because that's different from being an associate doc. Isn't it? You're, you're buying in, you're putting capital in, and you're starting a group within the larger group. And can you talk a little bit about how that works? Sure. So I've always enjoyed the entrepreneurial side of medicine. 
and I'm a very patient person. So I was willing to have the conversations with Colorado about what's long ball look like. What's a five-year plan? What's a 10-year plan? And that's what you have to think about when you're building a Genova clinic. I recently spoke to a fellow who talked to me about starting a clinic and hoping to flip it or get it acquired. And I was like, you didn't spend 11 years of your life to learn how to flip a clinic. Hopefully you spent 11 years of your life to learn how to help patients. And if you're thinking about flipping clinics, then you might be on the wrong side of you know, healthcare right now. And I think the fellow was a little taken aback when I said it, but I, I was very honest because if they're thinking about pumping up a clinic to then flip it, that's, that's the wrong approach. Why? Um, because I, I think if you're going to build something, you have to have, at least my view, was that this will be my first and last job. I'm going to cut my teeth at the same desk that I hope to retire from. And that's the way I walked into this. And along the mentorship lines, there's Dr. Schoolcraft, who is the founder and physician, but then there's also a CEO of the entire organization, John Perdue, who, to his benefit, is a very approachable individual, right? I don't actually think I know anyone who calls him Mr. Perdue, right? Like everyone knows him as John. And that is a benefit for us in that as we had all these business questions and expense questions and how do we model things and how do we put it all together, you had Dr. Schoolcraft helping with the business and you trusted John. And then you had John who was helping us understand the finances behind it. So it was kind of like this dual mentorship as we were building literally from scratch. So why is it important to you that you want to be a part of something that stays for a while or you want to be in the same venture for a while? Because I'm not sure, I don't disagree with your view that maybe it isn't the best idea to flip, but I also, it's, it's not immediately obvious to me that it's a necessarily a bad decision. Entrepreneurs do different things all the sure. time. And just by launching a venture in that way, you can learn so much and it might be what's necessary to be the base for the next venture. So why is it important to you to have that long-term continuity? So with only 40 of us coming out of training on average around the country per year and knowing that infertility affects one in eight couples nationwide, right? 12 and a half percent of the people in America will deal with the diagnosis of infertility. I do think there's an altruistic side where I view that like, we should be taking care of patients. Now, should we be fairly compensated? Absolutely. Should we, should our pay be commensurate with the work that we're doing? Absolutely. Should we be trimming the fat and really trying to make sure that no one's riding on the coattails of the hardest worker? Absolutely. Like I'm all for clinical efficiency and financial efficacy right? Like the doctor should be paid fairly and efficiently while the clinic is very efficient. In the same regard though, with the model of pump and flip, there comes a point where you have to show unparalleled growth. And I would worry a little bit about that individual who walks into that clinic with that, with that goal. If you walk into that clinic with that goal that I'm going to flip this thing, well, what you need to flip it on is exponential growth. And if you're getting exponential growth in the earliest stages, you may be rushing to treat patients that don't get treated other places. You might be using a key performance indicator or a KPI that's not an appropriate medical indicator of the success of your clinic, but you're saying, I can increase revenue unnecessary tested. I can increase volume unnecessary cycling. And there is, I would say, a push 
And thank God, again, we have great clinical oversight. And I think what sets us apart, and we'll get to this, is the partnership mentorship model. But I've definitely seen at the smaller other clinics where all of a sudden they open and year one is 50 cycles, year two is 400 cycles. And you're like, how did you do 8X? And then you find out 46, 47-year-olds are told that this is the place to go for your first IVF cycle ever. And the donor egg conversation is not happening. I think that's a very interesting view on the difference of the business KPIs versus the medical KPIs. And if your goal is to flip, then you're probably doing a lot of those things, possibly immature, prematurely. And I think there's an interesting constraint that I'm, I've been given by one of my favorite business minds. His name's Blair Ends, but he gives his readers, listeners, clients, the constraint that you can never sell your business. I mean, not that you won't or shouldn't, but just operate with that constraint and notice the difference in the type of venture that you build. And I think that's been very true for me too, is in doing that is whether I sell Fertility Bridge someday or not, I have no idea, but I really like what I'm building right now. And the way I'm building it is different because it's as though I'm going to be the one that ends up with it. Right. It's an interesting view. And again, when you speak to young fellows who are coming out, they all stress over their contracts, right? And I'm sure you've heard this as well. So there's this SREI annual retreat that used to happen in August. And you do this between your second and third year. And people will be talking about the contracts that they're, they, they've received or the contracts that they're reviewing. And people get so focused on how they're going to break up, right? Like what's the exit? What's this mean? What is this non-compete? And I tell everyone the same thing. I'm like, if you're looking for what the exit is, if you're looking for where's the pin to pull the grenade, to set the grenade off, you're not looking at the right big picture. You should be looking at your contract of where's my opportunity to demonstrate my value to this practice. Where's my opportunity for partnership? Where's my opportunity to accelerate if possible my responsibility so that I can increase my productivity and also increase my share of my take-home. That's a very different approach that very few fellows, I think, right now are looking at. I think one thing that's really missing from employment agreements is the terms for the buy-in. And that's the source of a lot of frustration that I see an associate leaving a practice after two or three years. They thought that they were ready to be a partner. The existing partners felt differently. Now, whatever was the source of that disagreement, there's multiple sides to any argument. I, I wasn't a fly on the room in those situations. But what I can say in summary is that there was a difference in expectation that could have been enumerated or at least made much more explicit in the buy-in agreement. And I think what you're talking about is is a little bit more about that. Okay, what do I have to do and spelling that out more to be a partner rather than just, okay, when it doesn't work out in two years, how do I get out of it? Yeah, and I think, and I give everyone the same advice. Like if you're looking for a job at CCRM or you're looking at some other place, because for academics, it's very clear, right? There's not going to be a partner. When you're in these academic constraints of these academic practices, you're going to end up becoming an employee of either the Department of OBGYN or the independent practice that's employed or owned by the hospital. So the view is very different. And maybe you'll be dealing with like RVUs or you'll be dealing with a different system of how you figure out your compensation plan. But on the private practice side, people get wrapped around the axle about the non-competes and 
what's going to happen? And what do you mean I can't practice in New Jersey if I lose my, I quit my job in New York? And, and it drives me bonkers. I'm like, take a step back. Think about growing yourself and growing that practice to the point that you say, how do we open up a practice in New Jersey? How do we open up a practice in Connecticut? Does this contract limit me from the ability to grow this practice to where maybe the partners don't have the time or the energy or the resources to do this today? And that's a very different view. Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only $5.97 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. Brian, isn't there more contract angst if you're signing up to start a de novo clinic? Because instead of, okay, you, the entity, are just giving me a salary to become your associate, and then there's the opportunity for my, me to buy in in two or three years, it's I'm putting down capital now to start something with you. And that seems like there'd be a lot more angst. So that's the unknown, right? So that was the scariest part of it, because I recognized very early on that this was the least popular decision that I could make, which was to start a new practice in New York when there's some really great, well-established practices and that it would- Least popular up. among who? I think of, uh, amongst the other practices, mentors, other individuals, there's always, there, there's always concern about the new kid on the block. And part of inherent in training of any fellow or resident is learning the playbook of that practice. And so I do think that there's an element there of secret sauce that people kind of don't want shared in the local market. I want to talk about New York as well, because we had Dr. Bob Stillman on the show a few weeks ago. And when he was talking about Shady Grove's history, he was talking about New York and he talked about the other East Coast markets that they went to first because there was not a dominant single group there. Contrast with New York, where he described it as sumo wrestlers, that the reason why there wasn't one dominant group is because you had a few sumos that were the equilibrium of that in the ring. And so how did you decide that this was the ring you wanted to get into these <laughs> sumos with, I, knowing that you are a New York guy, as you described, yeah. but how did we get from meeting Dr. Schoolcraft in Boston to, to, to knowing this opportunity might take you to Denver to saying, 
I want to stay here and do this in Manhattan. So I told him the truth. I'm a highly competitive individual, but in Denver, the bagels are terrible. The pizza is terrible. And I can't get behind the Broncos being a lifelong Giants fan. So I was like, if you don't have football, you don't have good carbs. I just can't live there. So how do we bring your clinic to New York? Because I'll be a much happier individual. That was literally the elevator pitch. Now, in full transparency, since that time, my father-in-law has switched to me to become a Jets fan. And I probably wish I was a Broncos fan because at least the Broncos have been in the Super Bowl in recent history. Brian, if you're switching football teams right here on the podcast, I'm not believing your conviction in any NFL club whatsoever. <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, my father-in-law pulled the meanest trick ever, which was the night that I asked for permission to marry my wife. He asked me if I'd become a Jets fan. Well, he countered you, my you failed the test, Brian. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> but my father-in-law said that you've got to root for any other team but the Buffalo Bills. It would be over. So, but, so this um, was part of your pitch. And then, but what was the value prop to them? To, to so I it? think, you know, New York is, it, it sounds very cliche and very Frank Sinatra, but if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Now, of course, I didn't know what their growth plans were for the future. I didn't know that in 2021, there would be 11 de novo clinics around North America. Oh, sorry, 11 fertility, CTR and fertility clinics around North America, including de novos. I had no idea what their plans were for the future, but I felt that, New York was lacking CCRM science. And as a geek and as a tech person, that science resonated with me. And unfortunately, what I realized early on would be that even though CCRM has the fastest path to parenthood, right? Like we, we focus on this, right? Like we focus on how do we get someone pregnant and how do we get them and to achieve their goals and whatnot, right? That's what we talk about every day is how do we be faster at this? How do we get someone more efficiently pregnant? Efficiency being fewer cycles, fewer transfers, better outcomes, whatnot. I felt that in the current practices that existed in New York, I was going to end up meeting resistance if I tried to incorporate this CCRM approach at these other places. So literally, why compete at those places when you can compete with those places? And I think competition is a good thing. Everyone thinks it's a bad thing, but competition is good. It makes us all better, right? Like, when you become complacent, you're probably not a good doctor. One size does not fit all. Unexplained infertility is a frustrating diagnosis, and that should not just be something you check off on your SART data. I'm going to call everyone unexplained, right? You should dig deeper and figure out why it's unexplained or why they're not getting pregnant. So for me, it was all about how do we integrate a high-tech, high-touch clinic into the most competitive IVF market in America, right? More fertility clinics are within five square miles of where I'm sitting today than anywhere else in the United States. So what was the hardest part about starting in that landscape? So I think the hardest part was the honest conversation with Dr. Schoolcraft and CEO John Perdue, which is, so we're all excited and we wanna get married, we're dating, how do we do this? And the hardest part of it was recognizing that the real estate costs in Manhattan were five to 10 times what they were in any other market that either CCRM was already affiliated with or that they were looking to expand to. That was the hardest part to be quite frank, was just, it, it was a numbers problem. It, it was literally an issue with zeros of understanding the market. Now you can do deep analyses of what is the payer mix? What is the population of New York look like? Is the, are the needs met or unmet? We actually made a heat map at one point, looking at the map of Manhattan, figuring out 
where the actual clinics were. I don't know if you recognize or not, but CCRM is on 53rd and 7th, which is in the heart of Manhattan. Suppose that many of the other clinics, which were where people lived, right? Upper East Side or in the 30s on First Avenue or in the Upper West Side, we took a different approach, which was, let's go to a place that has high touch, high transit, near the subways, near the PATH train from New Jersey, near Port Authority for buses to come in, near Long Island Railroad from Penn Station. Let's pick a place that's near where people work so they can get treated and get to work. So we have to revisit your value prop because I remember, I imagine your value prop was revisited during that difficult conversation. That if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. That's reason to go to New York. Five to 10 times the cost of <laughs> real estate. You're probably not going to make five to 10 times the amount of profit. So what is really behind this sentiment of if we can make it here, we can make it anywhere that's truly advantageous to the entire company. So right at the time that we, right at the time that we were really having these conversations, we looked at the data. How many patients were flying from New York and the East Coast out to Denver? How many patients could be flying out to Denver? How many patients are probably just frustrated and either staying at their current clinic or just unmet needs and are just giving up? And when we had that conversation about the inherent volume that was currently in New York at that state of time in 2015 of what was sitting in New York City, either the unmet need or the defined number of patients that were already doing there, there was enough volume to support the finances of the clinic. So it was a very calculated financial decision. But the other thing we recognized was that I couldn't do it alone. Back to our whole concept of partnership, right? We recognized early on that I was going to need to bring partners on, people who are well-experienced, people who had volume behind them, people who had demonstrated their own volume at other clinics, because you have to remember, coming out of fellowship, you're an unknown, right? Not just me, anybody, anyone out of fellowship, you don't know how what they're going to be like when they're actually practicing medicine. And so it was that unknown, which was me, but I, I think I had the, the grit and the stomach for the growth phase. And then taking some people who had demonstrated interest in transitioning to new jobs, who had dem who had growth behind them. What has that growth been like since the inception? And you, you had this conversation, I think, in 2013. I think you started working on opening the practice in 2015. Is that right? Yeah, I finished fellowship in June of 2015. And that's when we started. What has growth been like since then? A 50-50 mix of absolute excitement and absolute exhaustion. It is not felt like we've taken our foot off the gas since we started doing over a thousand cycles pre-pandemic a year from starting at 200 our first year. So each doctor, if you, you know, average it out, call it 250 per doctor, which is, a, I think, a very comfortable number, as I'm sure you know, to now really having banner months for the last five, actually the last six months now, as we've recovered from this pandemic at a 20% growth rate compared to what we've done in the past. Growth has been continuous in patient volume. We haven't grown in the other two places, which I hope we do. One is in the number of doctors, right? We're still four. We've been four really since we opened the doors. June 1st, 2021 will be our five-year anniversary. We are still four doctors since that time. We're still one location. We do have a small site that we use two days a week for monitoring, but we haven't done the big growth you've seen with other clinics where in a five-year span, they've gone from four to eight doctors. 
or in a five-year span, they've gone from one location to three or four satellite locations. I do think that there's an issue that occurs in many of these other practices where they put the junior person out at a satellite that doesn't allow for that mentorship as we were talking about before. I also don't think that that feels very much like a partner because you're kind of saying, let's farm you out. You're happy. We, we're happy but with weren't you. you farmed out, right? Weren't you the ultimate satellite? You're New York to Denver as opposed no, to but New Rochelle I, to New York. I never felt like that. I felt like from the beginning that Colorado was our biggest cheerleader. They wanted us to succeed. They wanted to see their New York volume go down as our New York volume went up. I never once felt like we are taking from the mothership. I always felt like it was, let's grow together, which is really important because there's a lot of really tough, stressful days. And, you know, there, when we first started, and you should definitely have John Purdue on here and he'll tell you his whole story of his team and the initial management team that was there that he worked with. But there was this attitude that I still maintain to this day, which is just to do one more, one more of anything, like go see one more patient. Come in an hour earlier to see one more patient. Stay an hour later to see one more patient. Figure out how you just do one more. And what happened was during this initial growth phase, especially 2016, 2017, where we really, I think, hit our stride and just continued to grow from there, was this attitude of let's build what we have and let's kick the tires, right? Like let's look introspectively. Let's figure out what's working, what's not working, and let's optimize before we get too big for ourselves, which has been really important. So now you're at a point where it sounds like you're ready to add on a few more doctors. Perhaps this will be a little bit of recruitment advertising for some of the fellows that are listening. If they want to go to New York, maybe reach out to Dr. Levine. I want to talk about another dynamic that I hadn't thought to talk about until you just made me think of it, which was your growth and then the hindrance of not having other physicians. And so I'm introducing a hypothetical here. But when you're in a group within a group, sometimes they might not have the same needs. And so part of the reason why you bought into this whole thing was because you wanted their process, their methodology, their system. But what happens when a certain location, region, office runs into different challenges? And I'm thinking, what if there's a place that has four docs and they're doing a thousand, but now they could be doing 12, 15, that the new patient volume just keeps stacking up. We'd love to be using advanced providers here. This is a hypothetical. I'm just saying, not saying that's what one group wants to do or that the system doesn't want to do, but there can be different needs. And what the system said, well, we don't do that. And then, so how do those, how are those differing interests reconciled? Wow. <laughs> so that's, I think that's a tough, that's a tough one because you kind of need to drink the Kool-Aid or not. I think when you're, you're doing what I did and I very early on recognized that outcomes speak for themselves and you can define outcomes however you want. Those could be pregnancy rates. Those could be, in my opinion, the more important than just pregnancy rates is patient satisfaction scores, patient satisfaction rates, online reviews, feedback from colleagues, asking people in the community, like if you needed treatment yourself, where would you go? If you needed your sister to receive treatment, where would you go? And so I think what, what you're hinting at is you do need to drink the Kool-Aid of the practice that you join. You do need to understand that there is a well-oiled process that's there. But to be for all the fellows who are listening out there, 
when we're looking to hire someone for CCRM, as important of a interview is meeting the doctors in the practice of the location that they're going to go to and speaking with Dr. Schoolcraft and, and the, the leadership team is a visit to Colorado, is a visit to the lab to see how the science is integrated into patient care, to understand the science is not tangential to the care, but it's actually part and parcel of what we do and to understand how the protocols are being optimized, how the laboratory environment is being changed. When people start to see that a laboratory environment is vertically integrated with a genetic testing core, and together these two things are talking, it might sound like a, a minor point, but for example, many practices in America use a third-party vendor for genetic testing. Very little conversation occurs between that third-party vendor and the laboratory leads of the clinic that's using that service. In our environment, because they're all under one roof, we've got a ton of crosstalk that's going on. When we're talking about the mosaic embryos or the no results or the, the embryos that come back without enough genetic material to make the call, the inconclusives, it's a very different conversation for those patients because we can tell them that the genetic testing people are talking to the laboratory people and together we're talking about the environment and the medias that we're using and the techniques that we're using. Now, in the same regard as you were hinting at, right, I'm not going to go change the lab. Even though I'm a doctor and I utilize that lab freely, that's not my place, right? Like I kind of stay in my lane, which is I take care of people and I sleep at night really well, knowing that there is a killer lab. Like there's an engine to this place that's churning out great results. And there's a bunch of people who are much smarter than me behind the scenes. And I have the opportunity in New York to reach into that resource to work with those people. That's, that is an extremely interesting thought to conclude on. But before we conclude, I would like you to leave with thinking back to all the mentorship that you received from John, from Dr. Schoolcraft, from what you've learned yourself in the last six plus years. What should fellows be studying, learning? What should they be seeking out either in terms of learning on their own or learning from someone else with regard to the next step of their career or business before they leave fellowship? So I think in the second year of fellowship, which is what I call the messy middle of fellowship, right? There's the first year, you've been an OBGYN for four years. Now all of a sudden, like it's like drinking from a fire hose, right? New language, new talk, new procedures, whatnot. In the second year where you're really starting to cruise along and you're starting to get into your groove, take a step back and take a look at either where the patients are going when they're dissatisfied, where the patients are coming from, and the doctors in the group that you think are most satisfied with the current setup and talk to them. Like I remember in fellowship, I used to ask people all the time, are you happy? Fellows are very scared to ask these questions, but ask an attending, like, are you happy? Is this what you imagined it would be like? Is this what you were hoping for? And people will tell you the truth. And right, you, you, you get someone start talking, just you have to, of course, if you're gonna ask a question, be a good listener, but ask them. And people are very honest about their experience. This is the purpose for ASRM. This is the purpose for PCRS. As a fellow, you should also take a, a deep dive into yourself. What do you want to do? In a private practice, you probably have more control over your schedule. In a group practice, private or academic, you probably have less control over your schedule. In an academic practice, you probably have less risk and more stability. So you have to understand that what is your personal threshold? Where does your rheostat get set 
or your risk reward ratio, because you can actually make much more money potentially if that's your goal in academics than private, but you could potentially have equity on the private side and that's so you could play long ball with it. And you just have to figure out like, where do you want to turn that dial, right? Like, where do you want to be? The last thing I would say is that for any fellow who's out there is talk to anyone, everyone. We're not all competitors, right? Like we were all fellows too. It's actually really humbling when a fellow reaches out and it's like, hey, can I ask you a question? You don't know me, but I'm a second year. I'm a first year. I'm a third year. Or like, can I find some time to chat with you? Most likely we'll even pick up the bill and pay for the dinner, right? Like, or the coffee or whatever else, or like the, pick up the phone, reach out. Like there's our community of fertility doctors is so small. And what I hope happens in the next 15 years is that as that generation that started this field really ages out and retires, that you start to see this other crop of collegial people. I actually like the people that I work with at other clinics. <laughs> I mean, mo- many of us train together residency or fellowship, we like each other, we refer to each other. And I think if you can demonstrate for the fellows out there, an interest in being collaborative, and an understanding of the collaborative nature, and that taking care of a patient is a partnership, uh, right? No one ever got pregnant from just one doctor, it's a team of individuals behind that doctor that work with that doctor that work with that team together, you'll kill it. But just got to figure out again, I think the big picture is where's your rheostat set? Are you on the risk side? Are you on the reward side? And what is your reward? It's not money for everyone. For some people, it's stability and control their timing of their schedule. But reach out. Reach out to everyone. Reach out to Griffin. I mean, you talk to more people than probably anyone else out there. So just like talk to people. And I'm happy to make those introductions as well to anyone that I know the not the least of whom is Dr. Brian Levine. Dr. Levine, thank you for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Stay safe. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.